Think of a man who was born at a specific time, who died on a specific date, yet you cannot determine his age from his lifespan. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, begins interviewing several kids about their ideas on the Christmas story. Listen carefully and see where the kids want to begin this famous story, and then see if they can figure out our riddle. What are some of the stories that you've been hearing at school? You know, some of the Christmas stories. How many of you like Christmas stories? Okay, what are some of the stories that you've heard? Maybe at school or maybe some of the Christmas specials that you've watched on TV. What are some of the stories, the Christmas stories that you like? You got one? The Christmas Carol. Okay, boy, we've got a classicist here. Who wrote the Christmas Carol? Charles Dickens. Boy, let's give him a hand. All right, that's awesome. Good. That's a special one. You're going to go a long way in life. That's probably the classic Christmas story. That's neat. Janae? White Christmas. All right, good. That's another one. Anybody else have one? A Christmas story that you like. What about the Grinch that stole Christmas? Anybody ever have that one? I think that's one of Josh's favorites. I'll tell you where Josh is coming from. (laughs) Anyone else have any others? What is the real story of Christmas? What's the real story of Christmas, okay? Jesus' birth, okay, that's good. How many of you would agree the real story that we need to be excited about? Good, that's good. It's it's about Jesus' birth. Okay, let's suppose you're at school and a friend of yours says, you know, what's Christmas all about? And you say, oh, it's the Christmas story. And they say, oh, you mean the Grinch that stole Christmas? You say, no, no, not the Grinch that stole Christmas. The real Christmas story is about... Jesus' birth, okay? Where, and, and they say, well, man, I haven't heard about Jesus' birth. Why don't you tell me? So they challenge you to tell them the story of Jesus' birth, the story of Christmas. How would you begin? Where would you begin the story, you think? You begin once upon a time, and only it's not a once upon a time fairy tale. This is the real thing. But how would you go on from there? Where would you begin telling the story of Jesus? Good, that's a really good place. Man, you like to get right into the action. He's going to begin right there when uh, Mary and Joseph were searching for a place in Bethlehem to be able to find a place. That would be a good place to begin, okay? Janae, where would you begin? Janae says, and and she said she would uh, begin it with a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be taxed. And that's one of the places, uh, in fact, that one of the Gospels begins the account right there. Remember that? You've all read that. In the days of Caesar Augustus, the decree went out that all the world should be taxed. So that's one of the places that one of the Gospel writers began the story. Anybody else have a beginning point for the, yeah, where would you begin it? Good, where Mary was told the angel. You'd begin in Nazareth, where the angel Gabriel came down and made the announcement to the young virgin Mary that she was going to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And that's where Matthew begins the, I mean Luke begins the account right there. Can anybody else tell me another place where you'd begin the Christmas story? I've got one. Uh, we begin right in the middle of the action with Mary and Joseph trying to find a, a place to stay while Mary's about ready to give birth to the baby Jesus. That'd be an exciting place to begin. Uh, we've got another one that would begin with the decree of Caesar Augustus. And then we have another one that would begin with the announcement to Mary up in Nazareth. Can anyone can think of another way? Janae, where else would you begin it? Creation, okay. Can anybody tell me which book of the New Testament begins with creation? Genesis is a book of the Old Testament that begins with creation. So that was a really good guess. One of the books of the... So that's a good place. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Can anyone tell me one of the New Testament Gospels that begins kind of like that? In the beginning was the Word, 
You got it? Anybody remember that verse? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's where John's Gospel begins the Christmas story. In other words, John's Gospel says that before Jesus became the baby in the manger, it's saying that he was the Word, means that he was the revealer of God. He's the one that can tell us what God is like. And he says that in the beginning that he was existing. In other words, the baby in the manger, according to the Bible, did not just come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem. Like, I came into existence October 15th, 1949. That's when I was born in Summit, New Jersey. And then I don't remember anything for about two and a half years until a girl pushed me off a bike. And that's my very first memory. And I remember my dad carrying me on his shoulders. And, and, and now, ever since then, I've kind of been growing in who this Dave Wurtzen is. And that's the way all of your mom and dad, everyone out there are. They're all just like you are. How many of you can remember before you were one year of age? None of us can, right? You see, we don't even remember. So you were around here on this planet for a whole year and you don't even remember it. Your, your parents had to change your diapers. They had to, you know, clean up your messes and clean up your runny noses. And you don't even remember it. But the Bible's saying that the Lord Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, unlike us, was existing. And what we're going to talk about in today's message is I want to go back to before the beginning. And I want you to work hard. It's going to be hard for all of us. We're going to try to think of God in his eternal existence. We're going to work on that. How in the world, what does it mean that God was in the beginning? You ever stop and think about, it, about that as a group of adults? You see, I found, you know, there was a day when a group of believers was really excited about what we're going to talk about. You know, it's really interesting, as American believers, we have the idea that the latest thing and the, and the things that we're really interested in is what people have always been really interested in. What the Church of Jesus Christ today is really, really interested in is, is things that help us. We are really interested in information that directly helps us. For example, and some of it's very good information. Like, we really get excited, for example, about information about how to raise our kids. We're all excited about that. We're also really excited about developing our self-identity. Every one of you is really concerned about developing your self-understanding and making sure that you're strong in yourself. In fact, a lot of modern thinking, one of the ways to think about modern America is that we focus on ourselves. That's where most of our focus is. You say, oh, David, I don't focus on myself. Well, stop and think about this. How many of you think about your thoughts from the time you got up this morning? Okay, you got it? You got you woke up this morning. What have you been thinking about this morning? Who is the dominant thought about since the time you got up? And if you're like me, you've been thinking a whole lot about yourself, haven't you? And see, that's the way we are. It's an amazing thing. We are really self-centered. We are self-focused. And in fact, our culture is trying to get you more self-focused. When you turn on the TV set and they start giving you advertisements, what do they try to get you to think about? They try to get you to think about how you can make yourself smell better, how you can get yourself to look better, how you can get yourself to feel better. If you drive this car, you're going to really be self. You're going to be somebody. Our whole culture is self-oriented. In fact, another thing of our culture is almost all of us have the idea that we're self sufficient. 
In fact, if I were to teach you, it says, I really want to help you to learn how you can be more self-sufficient. I mean, we're going to try to really teach you to be able to go out in that world and to be strong and to be self-sufficient. I mean, we could get cranked up about that, right? Sure, we all want to be self-sufficient. But I want you to stop and think about it. The babe in the manger story begins at the very beginning of time, and then you have to take one step back from the beginning of time, and you're, and you're in a place that's not a place. You're in a time that's not a time anymore. You're in something that's almost impossible for us to understand. You're talking about eternity. And what I want you, I, I think in order for you to really understand, and for me to really understand the miracle the incredible reality that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I think we need to remember and we need to think carefully about who Jesus was before he was the babe in the manger. Because John's gospel begins by saying, in the beginning, the word already was. The one that would speak to us about God, the one that would reveal to us who this ultimate incomprehensible being is that we call God, it's saying in the beginning the revealer of that ultimate God already was. So Jesus, the babe in the manger, was already existing before there was a beginning. And then it says this. It says that he stood face to face with God and then it makes an incredible statement. It's saying the baby in the manger was God. Now, what does that mean? You see, what does it mean to be God? You ever stop and think about what, is, what, is, what does God mean? And I want to share something with you about this. You know, a lot, of it, a lot of the unbelievers that I talk to, they'll say, well, I'll believe in God. You know, if God will just prove it to me, if, if God will just show me. I mean, if there was really a God, it should be obvious to everybody. I mean, I should be able to see him and I should be able to hear him and I should be able to grab a hold of him. Well, that's not true of God. The truth of the matter is, the incredible thing about God is that God is, is so immense. He's so out there. He is so great that there's no way that you could ever get to know him through your own strength. You ever stop and think about that? You know what it would be like? It'd be like taking a two-year-old and trying to teach a two-year-old about calculus. Can you imagine how far you would get? Some of you that have two-year-olds. Can you imagine taking a two-year-old and said, we're now going to go over the theorems of calculus. We're going to develop, develop how differential equations are, are. How many of you understand what I'm talking about now? Most of you don't. How many of you ever took calculus in college and flunked it? No, don't raise your hand. And what I want you to stop and think of is we are a culture that's totally focused on self. And even as believers, we can be totally focused on self. And I'm going to say a very radical thing. I want you in, to let you in on the secret of life. The secret of life is not to be focused on yourself. It's not about getting yourself together. It's not about developing yourself. It's not about meeting the needs of self. It's not about climbing up the ladder and somehow becoming a really important self. If you follow that pathway, you're going to totally miss what life is all about. You'll totally blow it. You might feel good at times. You might think you got it together at times. And ultimately, you're going to find out that you messed it all up. Because life is, about not, is not about getting to know yourself. Because you are not self-sufficient. There's only one being in all the universe who's self-sufficient. And the name of that being is God. But you know what? He tells us something about that ultimate being. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, we have one of the greatest places to begin to talk about the only being in the world that's self-sufficient. The children of Israel in Exodus chapter 3 were in a terrible situation. 
And I want you to remember as we talk about this that the baby in the manger, the, the, the one that was born in Bethlehem, was this individual that we're going to talk about as we study in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, the children of Israel were in terrible circumstances. They were in hard times. We think that we're going through hard times. This week has been a week of suffering for many of you and for me. And the children of Israel were suffering. The children of Israel got up. You know this story well. They got up every morning and they couldn't do what they wanted to do. They couldn't go to the job that they wanted to go to. They couldn't travel to another part of the world that they wanted to go to. They didn't have this precious thing that we called freedom. They were slaves. And every morning they got up and they were under the taskmaster of the pharaohs. They were whipped and beaten and and assigned projects on, on pharaoh's workforce. If I was an Israelite at this time, I would have felt like I feel at times in my own life. There isn't any God. Life is just life. It's just a, I'm just a sack of chemicals. And there's just energy fields that are in this planet and who knows where it ever came from. Because how could there ever be a good God when I'm sitting here and my people have been enslaved for 400 years? Ever since the time of Joseph and Joseph's death, the pharaohs forgot all about him and plunged the Israelites into bondage. And over 400 years, this has intensified and grown and developed. And it's getting worse and worse. If I was an Israelite, I would have probably given up on coming to worship like you're here to worship today. Because I would have been cynical saying life is just too bad, it's too awful, there's no way they'll ever work out. And maybe some of you feel like that today. Some of you are in vocations where you have to deal with the really hard suffering of life. And what I want you to realize about that is, and I'm going to be really honest with you myself, when I go to the hospital like I did a few times this week, yesterday afternoon, as I grab the hand of my friend, and I know humanly what's happening to my friend and I can't talk to him anymore. I can't reach him anymore. No response. There's a part of me that says, life really, you know what? And that's the way some of you feel about life. And I get angry and I get mad. And what I'm saying is that this is all there is. There's just the material world. We're just a bag of chemicals and then we cease to exist and who cares anyway? And some of you are wrestling with that thought. It's a very strong view in modern thinking. And I want you to realize it's a, it's, a, it's a view that'll kill you. It's a view that'll take all the meaning out of life. It'll also get you to run into all kinds of illicit ways for you to try to somehow get some happening in life, something to, to occur inside of you that'll make you feel alive and you'll never really find the answer. If I were the children of Israel, I would be a very cynical person, I think, because that's the way I react often to suffering. In fact, the Lord did raise up a deliverer. Forty years previous to the Exodus chapter 3, the Lord raised up a young 40-year-old man. He was very young. He was 40 years of age. And all of you that are about 40 or so should say amen. And he went to the defense of his people. There was an Egyptian that was beating up on an Israelite, and this young, this young 40-year-old Egyptian grabbed a hold of the, of, the, of the other Egyptian and killed him. And it turned out that the one who went to the defense of an Israelite was an Israelite himself. His name was Moses, raised right in the court of Pharaoh. But instead of the Israelites galvanizing behind Moses, instead of joining with him to conquer, to, to, to rise up and, and, and be able to deliver the people of God, the people of God rejected Moses. So he went away to the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years, Moses had to go to the backside of the desert. It was kind of like moving to the backside of Arizona, very similar land. 
just up there in the rugged, treeless mountains, no water, and just a little bit of grass, just skimpy grass to raise sheep. And that's where Moses was. He became a shepherd for 40 years. And I think if I was Moses, I would have said, you know, there's no God. You know, I've heard the stories about our past, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I've heard those stories. What do they mean? When suddenly one day as Moses was taking care of the sheep, he looked at it and he saw a bush. Not many bushes in this territory. So when he saw this bush, he noticed it. But this bush was not just unique because it was one of the few scraggly little brush that was growing out there in the wilderness. He also noticed this bush because it was on fire. It was on fire like it was, you might say that it was like on lightning on fire. And as he moved closer, he saw something incredible that the bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed. So we, we have this idea, you know, we have this idea of this, of, this, of this infinite source of energy, constantly burning, constantly shining, but never consuming what, what's there. In other words, not having, you see, if the way fire works is you have to consume, you, you have chemical reactions that take place that break things down. And, and all of you, some of you have been in chemistry class have been exposed to what combustion is. And you learn about that in just beginning high school classes. But this bush is burning and burning and burning, but it's never consumed. And as Moses moves closer, he hears a voice out of this incredible light. This incredible, what we might call the Shekinah glory. That's the word the Old Testament uses to describe when, when the ultimate being in the universe presents himself like in, as a pillar of fire, like he will when he leads the children of Israel through the wilderness. And out of this pillar of fire, you hear this voice, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Most of us in our lives as believers these days know very, very little about holy ground. You see, we're in a time in, in, the, in the relationship that believers have with God that it's kind of like, you know, he's a great friend, which is true. And we do learn about him as our daddy in heaven. Jesus Christ to pray, our daddy's in heaven. But, you know, you're never going to appreciate that intimacy. You're never going to appreciate what it really means for Jesus to become the baby in the manger if you don't understand what it means to stand on holy God. If you haven't caught a vision... If you haven't caught a vision of what, of what it really means that there's a God there and what that God is really like, then you're not going to appreciate what it meant for that ultimate being to become a baby that was born in Bethlehem so he could get close to you. In other words, until we learn in our lives to take off our shoes and realize what holy ground is like, then we're not going to understand the wondrous gift we have that in Christ we've been brought near. So important to realize that. So God told, out of the bush, God tells Moses to take off your shoes. In fact, I believe this was the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ in his pre-existence before he came as a baby in Bethlehem. Because it said it's the angel of Yahweh. In the Old Testament, you always have the angel of Yahweh. He's always the one that reveals the invisible God to us in some kind of a visible form. You see, the ultimate being in the universe is invisible. He's immortal. He dwells in eternal light. There's no way we could ever know him. You see, sometimes human beings, you just, we think we're going to get to God by starting with ourselves and marching to God. In fact, almost all the discussions that I have with unbelievers are about, you know, someone saying, I'm going to think about God and I'm going to get to him that way. And that's what I said earlier to you, you'll never make it. You'll never understand him. He's just too great. There's no way that you can start with yourself and get to God. You've got to begin with God. And you don't need to begin with God. God himself has to begin with himself and reach you. 
In fact, the truth of the matter is the eternal God really wants to do that. Some of you haven't gotten related to God. Some of you aren't really close to God in yourself. You're way away. You might have received him when you were a kid, and now you've gone away from it, or maybe you never did receive him. And what I want you to realize is that you need to realize that this business of being close to God is not something that you can just, oh, yeah, I can take care of it anytime I want to. Because you can't reach God at all in your own strength. He has to talk to you. He has to reveal himself to you. He has to turn the lights on inside of you. And I want you to know that he wants to do that. He longs to do that. And that's what this story is about. The eternal God spoke to Moses out of the bush. He said, take off your shoes, you're on holy link ground. And then he said this, you know this story well. He says, my people are down in bondage and I've heard their cries. God hears our cries. This infinite, immortal, invisible being knows everything that's happening to us. He's always there. He's always listening. And he tells Moses, you know, my people think I haven't listened. My people don't think that I'm going to respond to them, but I've heard every cry. And he says, now I'm going to act. So Moses has a fit. He says, you know, that, that's really nice. Because God tells Moses, I want you to go down into Egypt and tell my people, let my people go. So Moses says, right, to make a little bit, to tell this story in a colloquial way. Moses says, right. I mean, he, he says, God, that's really going to work great. I go in before the court of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's court worships, worships Horus. They worship crocodiles. They worship all the gods of Egypt. At Karnak, they built beautiful artistic temples all over the place along the Nile. And you tell me, I as an Israelite who just got thrown in the land, I'm supposed to go into Pharaoh's court and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's going to go, yes, sir, Moses. I mean, Pharaoh's a realist. He says, by the way, even contacting my own people, I say to my own people, I'm Moses, remember me? You kicked me out of here 40 years ago. And then Moses says this, God, when I go down there, whoever you are in this bush, who should I tell them sent me? You know, it's really important who sends you. Have you ever stopped to think of how important it is, the name that sends you? And that's what Moses is trying to do. You know, I grew up as a kid at Word of Life where my dad, you know, everyone thought my dad owned the place. I always, God owned the place. My dad was just kind of the understudy that really didn't own anything. And that's true. My dad never owned anything. Everything was always the organization, which ultimately meant it belonged to the Lord. But everyone thought my dad owned the place, which I really liked very much because anytime I went anywhere, they could say, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm Jack Wurtz's son. They let me right in. It's really, names are really important. Really, really important. And Moses is, it knows that. He says, now tell me his name. Names are important. Who should I say sent me? So look what he says. He gives the strangest response. It's a response in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Picking up the story. Moses says, what should I say when I go before Pharaoh? Who should I say sent me? Who should I say sent me when I go to my Israelites and try to get them to join with me? Look what God says in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Now that's one of those verses that you just read over. All of you have heard that Jesus said he was the I am. But you know what I find about most of us? Most of the things that we've heard over and over and again, we hardly ever think about. So I want you to stop and think today about what this name... Can you imagine the weirdness of this name? Can you imagine if you came up to me and said, what's your name? And I said, I am. That would be, a, now that is a strange name. In Hebrew, it's a yeah, and you say, well, man, that sounds even better. You know, that, that kind of works a little bit. But in Hebrew, it's the same as in English. It's I am. In fact, God says, I am 
who I am. That's his name. And what I want to do is I want you to stop and think about it. I want you to think, first of all, about the I. That's a good place to start. The, the name has two parts. What are the two parts? Tell me. I and M. If we're going to understand it, let's first of all begin with the I. You see, I started out today telling us that we all think about I. That's what I think about. I think about I. My life is consumed with I. You know the nutty thing about that is I think I'm really self-sufficient. I think that I am really important. I think that I deserve happiness. I think that I am the center of all of existence. I think that I am really something, right? So do you. That's what you think of. Only you think your I is important, don't you? You say, well, Dave, you're not so important. I am. And some of you turn around backwards and you say, I am not important. I am nothing. I am inferior. And you're still just centered in I. It's the same, just the opposite side of the, of the, of the same coin. You're just totally focused on yourself. You know the incredible thing about that is? I'm not that important. Before 1949, nobody on planet Earth even thought of David Booth Wurtz. I didn't exist. During World War II happened, and I wasn't here. How could it have ever happened? I mean, Eisenhower became the president. I mean, all kinds. I mean, Truman got elected, and, and I wasn't even here. In fact, you know what? The world went along just fine without me. And when I arrived on this planet, it's really not that big a deal. But I think it is. I mean, my whole existence centers on I. How about you? But you know what? Here's a being that's the only self-sufficient being in all of reality. I. Yahweh is saying, I am, I am the ultimate identity. I am the ultimate person in the universe. I'm the ultimate being. With, and you notice how the word began to break down? And this I, this ultimate one, who's the source. You see, your I came from him. So you can fight against him, you can rebel against him because he gave you an eye, but you'll never be independent from him. You just can't get independent from him. Because he's the ultimate eye. That's why it's so important. That's why worshiping him and knowing him is really the meaning of existence. Because he's the eye. There was a time when I wasn't an eye. And there will be another time when I won't be an eye either if it weren't for him. Unless he had given me the gift of eternal life. There'll be a day, another day, when I cease to exist. You know what else? He says not only that he's the ultimate self, he's the ultimate being, he's the ultimate center of identity. He says, number two, what's the second word? I am. You know what? There was a time when I wasn't, and there's a time when I will be. But this one says that I am. The one that spoke to Moses, the one that Jesus was before he came as a baby in the manger, is the one who always is. In fact, Revelation likes to give a name to the Lord Jesus saying he was the one who was, he is the one who always will be, and he is the one who is. In other words, I am. You ever stop and think about the wonder of that? Here is the one that we've been singing to today as we worship him. And the reason we do that is that all of existence rests in him. All of existence rests in him. That's what his name means. I am. He's the ultimate identity. And he has always been, always will be, 
And that's why you need to connect with him. Because he's the source of all of existence. That's the incredible statement. And Exodus chapter 3 goes on and says that this ultimate being, this one who's dependent upon no one. You see, God doesn't need us. God doesn't die. God doesn't depend upon us. God is totally sufficient in himself. He's the only one that can say that. Every one of you is dependent upon someone else. Ultimately dependent upon him. But he's the only one that's totally self-sufficient. That's what his name means. Let's look at the New Testament reference. Turn to John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, verse 26, the Lord Jesus was in a fight with some of his religious enemies. And in John chapter 5, in this section, he says some incredible things about himself. Look at John chapter 5, verse 21. John chapter 5, verse... Um, let's pick it up. We'll begin it up with verse, uh, with verse 24. I mean, John chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word, this is Jesus speaking, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In other words, the source of existence says, if you listen to me and believe in me, because Jesus is claiming that he is the I am. He says, I will give to them eternal life. And they will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming, and now it's come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And he's saying, for as the Father has life in himself. Now get this, the Father has life in himself. None of us can say that. I don't have life in myself. And yesterday, for example, in the hospital... I'm holding David's hand and he can't hear me anymore, as far as I know. I take it by faith, maybe he can, but probably can't. Can't communicate it anymore. I realize Dave doesn't have life in himself. And I don't have life in myself. You know what some of you are doing? Some of you, the horror of what's happening, because I know about it, I've been there often with members of our own family, and with many of you, you just want to run away from it. Because it faces us with ultimate realities. What's going to happen to me when that happens? Where am I going to be? So if you might be a very proud person here today, but I got news for you. You do not have life in yourself. That's why I beg of you to open yourself and connect with the only one who has life in himself. I know for sure that David is safe. I can't talk to him, I can't reach him, but I know that he's safe. Because the great I am said, I'm the good shepherd. And yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I need to fear no evil, but because thou art with me, you will be with me. I can't be with him. No other friends can be with him. Not even your own wife can be with you. And that's why it's so important to realize that the only one who's really self-sufficient is the only one that can be sufficient for you because he has life in himself. You see, life is a gift to me. God possesses life intrinsically in his being. And that's why you need to trust him. It's why you need to believe in him. It's why you need to relate to him 
because he's the one that has life in himself. And this ultimate being says that he has given all judgment for the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son of God to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of God. What an incredible statement. The scriptures say that the Son of God is the one who, just like the, his eternal Father, has life in himself. Turn to Psalm 102. These verses are quoted in Hebrews, but we'll close with some verses from Psalm 102. Incredible statements about how Christ, how God and his Son are totally self-sufficient. Psalm 102, verses 25 and following. This psalm is about someone who's wrestling with what we're wrestling with right now, a young man being cut off in the midst of his years. If you look at verse 23, you'll see that setting. The, the psalmist writes, and the, the author of Psalm 122 writes like this, In the course of my life, he broke my strength. He cut my days short. So the writer of this psalm is wrestling with exactly what a lot of us are asking. Like, you know, how does this happen? Why does it happen? It's just not the way things should be. And the writer of this psalm is wrestling with those kinds of questions. And, and yet, he's not wrestling, it, wrestling with it the way a lot of us do from, from the outside. This individual that wrote this psalm is actually the one who's being cut off. He's actually the one that's suffering. He's actually the one that knows his existence could just be fragile and it could be snuffed out. Now look what he says. So I said, how is he going to respond? Do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days, because your years go on through all generations. Who is this one that wrote the psalm connected to? You know, this is an incredible thing. This psalm was written hundreds of years ago. If I were to ask you, how many of you have heard the name Marduk? How many of you have heard the name Marduk in the past week as an object of praise and worship? Anybody heard the name of Marduk this week? I want every one of you to realize there was a day in ancient Babylon where Marduk's name would be praised every single day. No more. None of you have ever heard of him. How many of you have heard Horus worship this week? Some of you might have heard that name. You see, what I want, one of the things I want you to see, you know, we could go on and on, the God of the Hittites, the God of the Philistines. That's the setting, that's the milieu of this psalm. And what he's saying is that there's all these gods, but he's saying that your name goes on from generation to generation. How many have heard the name of Jesus mentioned as an object of worship this past week? That's what this writer realizes. He realizes, and that's something, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, I question that you need to get the answer to why the impact of this man if he wasn't God? How in the world did a Galilean peasant come to such renown? If I was an agnostic, that would drive me nuts. How in the world did a lowly Galilean peasant become the object of adoration of the world? And this psalmist is saying, from generation to generation, the name of God, because Jesus was God, and he is God, goes on. Then he talks about some things. In other words, God is going to continue. God's going to last. Let's look at some things that aren't going to last. It says, in the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Some of you, as you go away to college, and some of you go out in the workforce, you're going to be tempted to live for, for the cosmos. You're going to be tempted to live for the universe. That's where most of your friends are focused, into just now. We live for just this world system, just the universe. 
And what the psalmist is saying is you shouldn't worship the world system because God is the one who created the universe. In the beginning, he laid it out, kind of like someone would make a garment. But notice what he goes on to say. They will perish, but you will remain. Verse 26. They will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. That's an incredible statement. You know what this psalmist is saying? It's saying that God made the universe like like a jacket, like clothes, like I just took my jacket off. And all that we think is so important, the mountains, you know, the beauties of the oceans, the beauty of the stars, Carl Sagan's always talking about the wonders of outer space, the incredible distances and the incredible perfection that we, we, we seem to see in the universe. God says it's just like a set of clothes and one day he's going to go like that. This body, for example, that I think is so important, and I do need to take care of it, it is a gift from the Lord, but you know this body that I think is so important? that we pump iron, you know, trying to keep it in really good shape and ride bicycles and everything else. You know what the psalmist just said? One day, it'll just be all wrapped up and tossed away. And the one question in life that's going to be really important to you is, do you have something more? Have you found something more? And the psalmist has found something more. He says in this text, in Psalm 139, he closes it, Psalm 102, I mean. Let's just look at the close. Incredible, incredible faith this individual has. Psalm 102, it says this. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. You know what he's saying? He's saying that those who become the children of God will be able to bring praise in his presence. He's talking about the coming generations of Israel, but he's saying much more. He's saying your children, the ones that become related to you, instead of being wrapped up and tossed away like a garment, they're going to live forever and ever and ever. The question you have to ask is, do you believe that? All by myself would just stay I grab hold of his hand and I I just say, God, there's a part of me that's just really tempted to say this is all there is. Tremendous forces pulling me into negative thinking. And it's just physical. And the whole personality and the consciousness and all that is just chemical. And now it's being snuffed out like any other chemical process or any other physical process. And that's going to be it. That's one way to look at this. That's the way some of you are looking at life right now. And I want to share with you, that way of life will never satisfy you. In fact, it'll ultimately destroy you. It'll destroy life. But you know what else I can say? I can grab a hold of that hand and I can say, Dear Lord Jesus, I can't talk to my friend. And it looks like the physical life is ebbing. But by faith, because I can't see and I can't hear and all the physical evidence that I can is not really very good. But you've told me in your word that you're the I am. That you're the ultimate center of identity. That you're always existing and that you have given this life to your son. And your son has given it to everyone that will believe. And by faith I can say, that my friend is safe in the arms of the Lord. That's what this psalm is saying. 
the great I am, loved us so much that he entered this planet to reveal himself to us. The incomprehensible God. The God that dwells in, in infinity that we could never comprehend. At Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that he became a man and entered into this world so that I could have that kind of confidence because my friend has received the gift of what Christ did for him in the cross. And Christ actually experienced all that death can bring, everything. And then he conquered, and he's alive. And that's why I trust him, because he's the I am. He's the only one that has life in himself. And I've connected with the one that has life in myself, because I know that when this physical life is taken off like a jacket and thrown away, I need to have something much greater. And I hate death, and I hate the physical deterioration. But if you could only see the other side, if you could only know what it's, what it's like to live in, in glorious light forever, then you'd understand. There is joy in my heart mixed with sorrow. Because I've met the I am. Have you? Oh, I pray every one of you have. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. And I just want to pray, Lord Jesus, that everybody that's hearing this lesson about the great I am, the only self-sufficient one, Lord, I pray that they would connect with him. Lord, we've, we've learned in the last few times we've spent together that it's in you we live and have our, 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 our life. It's in you that we move and we live and we have our being because you're the source of all of our identity. Oh, Lord, I would pray that nobody would do the stupid thing of thinking they're sufficient in themselves, of turning away from the ultimate source of life in the universe. Lord, we know that you have revealed yourself and your son is not far from anyone here. And I just would pray, Lord, that if there be anyone listening as we talk to you now that doesn't know you, oh Lord, in the depth of their being, I'll pray that they'll say, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you forgave my sins, that you cleared away all the things that would keep me from getting close to God because Jesus totally paid for it on the cross. Lord, help them to affirm a belief in the resurrection that, that, that life doesn't end in just sickness and suffering and death. But there's an empty tomb testifying to the power of Christ, Jesus Christ, to conquer death. I pray that you would move them to receive it as the way, the truth, and the life, as history. That's the only history that can save them. I want to pray, Lord, for some of my brothers and sisters that it might have wandered away from the Lord Jesus and have started to live just for this material world and just for the stuff that they can see and hear and experience. Oh, Lord Jesus, use the study of the great I am to help them to reconnect, to pick up the receiver again and listen to you and let you be the one that controls their life. Oh, dear Lord, give me wisdom as I try to exercise this awesome responsibility of being a teacher to this precious group of believers about the great I am. Lord, use today's study as we meditate on who, what your name means 
and what you revealed about yourself. We thank you that in you, you give us the gift of sufficiency. But Lord, we're so thankful that we're always dependent upon you as the great I am. Protect us from the foolishness of being self-sufficient. Help us to become God, Christ, sufficient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is one 888 668 7884